Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, the podcast of excellent people. Book 10, Chapter 27. This chapter seems to present the intersection of Tolstoy's historical thought and Napoleon's actions. Why is this chapter necessary? What does Tolstoy think of Napoleon's actions? How does this chapter fit within the broader context of the entire book? Twisted Every Way says, I noted this yesterday, but for anyone interested, through the end of July, we are at 64% of the book read. I never knew before picking up this book that so much of it was a critique of the war by Tolstoy. Tolstoy definitely does not seem to subscribe to the Napoleon was a genius theory, and the last two chapters are like a teardown of his character and his war strategy. Four Lost Souls in a Bowl says, I'm not quite sure what to make of this chapter. It makes me wish I knew more about the Napoleonic Wars. I have the same um, feeling, actually. I think there's some really good, uh, a really good YouTube series about the Napoleonic Wars. I'm pretty sure. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Let me... Let me... See, sorry, I'm going to look it up. Napoleonic Wars. Um, yeah, wow. Okay, so there's something called Oversimplified. And they've made an oversimplified explanation of the Napoleonic Wars. It's been pub- it was published two months ago. Now, have a guess. Have have a guess in your head how many views the Napoleonic Wars oversimplified uh, YouTube video has had in the two months since it was released. Have a guess. What's your number? All right. Have you got a number? Lock it in. Lock it in your head. It's had 13 million views in two months. <laughs> 13 million views in two months of this video, The Napoleonic Wars Oversimplified Part 1 which is a half an hour video. There's, I can see there's a part two as well, another half hour. I wonder if there's just two parts, probably. Anyway, I'm definitely going to put that on the to watch list. And I feel like just watching those two YouTube videos will probably fill me in on all the Napoleonic Wars and probably be quite entertaining if the view count is anything to go by. Um... Four Lost Souls in a Bowl, thanks for saying that, um, because you you kind of reminded me that I think the same thing, (laughs) and I I knew about those videos from, you know, I I think they went across my feed, you know, probably a month ago or something, and I went, oh, that looks interesting, I should watch that, and then just completely forgot about it, and you you brought that memory back up for me, so thanks. Long Somewhere, 9167, has this to say, I have found these chapters an interesting contrast to the initial chapters of the book. Excuse me. In which some of the soldiers, I want to say Rostov in particular, maybe also Andre too. To be honest, I got the young men off to war characters rather confused in the earlier part of the book. They were so zealous and in love with the emperor. I wonder if the change in the narrator's tone is partially to reflect The fact that these previously idealistic men have grown and changed and become more bitter, jaded about the realities of war. Hmm. 
Rybread X says, I don't really like these chapters. It's an opinion that I'm unfamiliar with, which is clearly bias. I'm fine with that, but I can't tell if it's actually remotely close to what happened either way. I don't get excited when I read these chapters. I feel you. Like, we've long celebrated Napoleon as, well, you know, one of the, one of history's greatest leaders. And I feel like he must be gifted in some ways, right, in that regard. And Tolstoy kind of keeps saying that a lot of it was just, he was just the right guy at the right time and the right place, a slave to history sort of thing. I don't know if I'd buy it. I think, you know, he was probably, he probably was a genius. Um, yeah, so I, I feel you. Like, I know what you mean, like, you don't like these chapters because we don't know and we'll never know and how can you know? You know what I mean? And so Tolstoy just saying, oh, you know, the way historians tell it is all wrong. Maybe they are. Who who do we believe? And who? how could we ever know who's right? It is a frustrating sort of thought experiment. Anyway, enough of that. Chapter 28 goes precisely like this. Many historians say that the French did not win the Battle of Borodino because Napoleon had a cold. And that if he had not had a cold, the orders he gave before and during the battle would have been still more full of genius and Russia would have been lost and the face of the world would have been changed. The historians who believe that Russia was shaped by the will of one man, Peter the Great, and that France from a republic became an empire and French armies went to Russia at the will of one man, Napoleon, to say that Russia remained a power because Napoleon had a bad cold on the 24th of August may seem logical and convincing. If it had depended on Napoleon's will to fight or not to fight the Battle of Borodino, and if this or that other arrangement depended on his will, then evidently a cold affecting the manifestation of his will might have saved Russia, and consequently the valet who omitted to bring Napoleon his waterproof boots on the 24th would have been the saviour of Russia. Along that line of thought, such a deduction is indubitable, as indubitable as the deduction Voltaire made in jest without knowing what he was jesting at, when he saw the massacre of St. Bartholomew was due to Charles IX's stomach being deranged, but to men who do not admit that Russia was formed by the will of one man, Peter I, or that the French Empire was formed and the war with Russia began by the will of one man, Napoleon, that argument seems to merely... Sorry, seems not merely untrue and irrational, but contrary to all human reality. To the question of what causes historic events, another answer presents itself, namely that the course of human events is predetermined from on high, depends on the con- coincidence of the wills of all who take part in the events, and that a Napoleon's influence on the course of these events is purely external and fictitious. Strange as at first glance it may seem to suppose that the massacre of St. Bartholomew was not due to Charles IX's will, though he gave the order for it and thought it was done as a result of that order, and strange as it may seem to suppose that the slaughter of 80,000 men at Borodino was not due to Napoleon's will, though he ordered the commencement and conduct of the battle and thought it was done because he ordered it. Strange as these suppositions appear, Yet human dignity, which tells me that each of us is, if not more at least, not less a man than the great Napoleon. 
demands, I read that badly, strange as these suppositions appear, yet human dignity, which tells me that each of us is, if not at least, not less a man than the great Napoleon, demands the acceptance of that solution of the question, and historic investigation abundantly confirms it. At the Battle of Borodino, Napoleon shot at no one and killed no one. That was all done by the soldiers. Therefore, it was not he who killed people. The French soldiers went to kill and be killed at the Battle of Borodino, not because of Napoleon's orders, but by their own volition. The whole army, French, Italian, German, German, Polish and Dutch, hungry, ragged and weary of the campaign, felt at the sight of an army blocking their road to Moscow that the wine was drawn and must be drunk. Had Napoleon then forbidden them to fight the Russians, they would have killed him and have proceeded to fight the Russians because it was inevitable. When they heard Napoleon's proclamation offering them as compensation for mutilation and death, the words of posterity about their having been in the battle before Moscow, they cried, Viva le Emperor, just as they had cried, Viva le Emperor, at the side of the portrait of the boy piercing the terrestrial globe with a toy stick. And just as they would have cried, Viva le Emperor, at any nonsense that might be told them, there was nothing left for them to do but cry, Viva le Emperor, and go to fight, in order to get food and rest as conquerors in Moscow. So it was not because of Napoleon's commands that they killed their fellow men. And it was not Napoleon who directed the course of the battle, for none of his orders were executed, and during the battle he did not know what was going on before him. So, the way in which these people killed one another was not decided by Napoleon's will, but occurred independently of him, in accord with the will of hundreds of thousands of men who took part in the common action. It only seemed <clears throat> excuse me, to Napoleon, that it all took place by his will. And so the question whether he had or had not a cold has no more historic interest than the cold of the least of the transport soldiers. Moreover, the assertion made by various writers that his cold was the cause of his dispositions, not being as well planned or as on former occasions, and of his orders during the battle not being as good as previously, is quite baseless, which again shows that Napoleon's cold on the 26th of August was unimportant. The dispositions cited above are not at all worse, but are even better than previous dispositions by which he had won victories. His pseudo-orders during the battle were also no worse than formerly, but much the same as usual. These dispositions and orders only seem worse than previous ones because the Battle of Borodino was the first Napoleon did not win. The profoundest and most excellent dispositions and orders seem very bad, and every learned militarist criticizes them with looks of importance when they relate to a battle that has been lost, and the very worst dispositions and orders seem very good, and serious people fill whole volumes to demonstrate their merits when they relate to a battle that has been won. The dispositions drawn up by Weyrother for the Battle of Austerlitz were a model of perfection for that kind of composition, but they they still, but still they were criticised, criticised for their very perfection, for their excessive minuteness. Napoleon at the Battle of Borodino fulfilled his office as representative of authority as well as, and even better than, at other battles. He did nothing harmful to the progress of the battle. 
he inclined to the most reasonable opinions, he made no confusion, but not did not contradict himself, did not get frightened or run away from the field of battle, but with his great tact and military experience carried out his role of appearing to command calmly and with dignity. Okie Okikoki. There's another chapter for you. Tolstoy this is how Tolstoy psychs you up for a battle he just draws the moment out we all know it's coming you know the preamble it gets almost to the point of absurdity before he actually gives you what you're waiting for which is some blood thirsty murder (laughs) alright guys thanks for listening I'll see you tomorrow